these are the brothers that last time in his memory, growing up, when their father had treated him with favoritism, treated him with, as a special child, these are the brothers who couldn't handle that favoritism and responded with, with anger. They responded with jealousy, and they threatened him with murder, sold him into slavery. They got rid of him. Joseph is going to give his brothers a do-over. God is going to give the brothers another chance. Throughout the fall, we've been in a series in the life of Joseph called God at Work When We Can't See Him. And we've been saying that we follow an invisible God and we've been called to live by faith But that doesn't mean that God just leaves us to ourselves to be completely in the dark about what he's doing in those times when life just doesn't make sense. He gives us principles and patterns of his working so that we can better understand the kind of God he is and the kind of ways that he works. Uh, Today we're looking at what God is doing with that sin that you won't let go. Tim Keller shares a story of an accomplished musician who attended his congregation. And uh, she, for many years, uh, struggled greatly with her mental health. She, at one point, had Keller sit down with her therapist to better understand her background, her struggles, and what she was going through. And uh, the the therapist uh, said said this, Mary, Mary, which is uh, the the lady's name, virtually worships her parents' approval of her. And they always wanted her to be a world-class artist. She's quite good, but she's never reached the top of her profession. And she can't live with the idea that she's disappointed her parents. Uh, Medications helped with the symptoms of her depression, but they never got to the root of it. There was a lie that she'd held on to for many years And she struggled to break free of that. She struggled to let it go. The lie she told herself was, if I can't be a a world-class violinist, then I've disappointed my parents and my life is a failure. And that lie affected everything uh, that she did. It affected her thinking, her uh, her view of herself, her her self-worth, and... Uh, all that she brought to her career. She'd probably prayed countless prayers for God to make her more successful. Probably prayed many prayers for God to just uh, help her parents to, to approve of her just the way she was. But in not answering those prayers, God forced her to deal with a more significant and more uh, foundational or underlying problem that she had in her life. She had put her parents in the place of God and made her violin her salvation. And it wasn't until that she, she was forced through the trials that God brought her through to confront that truth that she was able to see it in light of the good news of the gospel and recognize that through faith in Jesus, she could find the love of her creator full and unconditional. That she could receive a salvation that was a free gift, not one that she had to tirelessly strive to accomplish or achieve. The hope of the gospel set her free. 
as she began to get relief from her obsessive need to find approval from her parents, she began to feel differently. She began to re-enter her musical career, this time not seeking to prove herself, not seeking to demonstrate her worth, but this time to express her love and her gift of music. One of the things that God does when life doesn't make sense and we can't see him is try to release us from those lies that we would otherwise hold on to and the sins that we uh, would otherwise cling to. And so I want to have you consider those uh, things in your own life. Have you uh, consider your own heart this morning and some of those things that, that may be deeply lodged in your own heart, lies that you may be clinging to, sins that you're holding on to, and ask yourself whether there, there may be something that God is seeking to do in your life to set you free and to bring him into the freedom of his children. And to do that, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 43. We have the next episode in Joseph's story and the story of his uh, father and brothers. Uh, I'll be reading from verses 1 to 14. The Black Church Bible is on the rack under the seat in front of you. It's on page 34. Genesis 43, verses 1 to 14. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to, said, said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. For my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would, now be, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the, to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned to the mouth, in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. This is the word of God. Now this passage shows us three principles of how God works with those stubborn sins that we would rather ignore, uh, just not deal with, and uh, put off to the side. The first is this, God can pry our fingers loose uh, when we won't let go. He can put us into circumstances where we are forced to confront issues that we would rather 
bury under the carpet. He is a God who can pry our fingers loose when we won't let go. Now, as the scene opens in verse 1, it says the famine is severe. It has dragged on now. They have run out of their food again, and they're beginning to feel the, the crisis of that, the, uh, the urgency of that. If, this, if the famine had passed quickly, none of the family's problems would have been addressed. Jacob would have held on to his favoritism. Simeon would have stayed in prison. The brothers would still be carrying the, the guilt of what they had done to Joseph, and, and the family would have continued on in disunity and in tension with one another. In verse 2, Jacob wants his problems to go away without actually dealing with them. And this is often what we do. We, we, just, we, we recognize there's a problem. We want it to be dealt with, but we won't, don't want to address the underlying issues that are contributing to the problem. He tells his sons to go buy food in Egypt, but he's in denial. He knows what his brothers remind him, which is you can't go down to Egypt to buy food unless you send the brother, uh, his son Benjamin, and he is set against sending his son Benjamin. He's refusing to do so, or at least he has refused to do so uh, up until this point. After losing Joseph, Jacob has become something of a helicopter parent. He is living with fear and anxiety. He wants to protect him. He wants to save him from any potential harm, and he will do whatever he, he can take. He doesn't trust his other, his other sons. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust the plan. He is living as if he's the one in control, trying to, to uh, protect uh, this favorite son of his, and it continues to cause problems. Despite all of this, he manages to blame his sons for his problems. I, I, I love this. In verse 6, he says, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? <laughs> like, did, did he want him to lie? Did he, did he want him to, to, to just uh, tell, tell a story to this other person? He is in denial about his problem, and he's looking for someone else to blame. And it just is a picture of how irrational we can often become when we are in those situations, not wanting to deal with something and yet looking for a solution or at least someone that we can blame our problems on. After a lengthy speech from Judah, Jacob finally agrees to release Benjamin and he's going to send his sons. Interestingly, he does so just as he did many years previously with Esau in that he sends ahead a gift, and lots of money. Also, just as he did many years previously with his brother Esau, uh, he uh, prays for God to show mercy. He's repeating the same patterns, at least in that situation, the other biggest trial in his life. He had learned some things, uh, and uh, he repeats them here. But listen to his prayer. In verse 14, he says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. What do you learn about Jacob from that prayer? Did you notice that he asked for Benjamin to be returned along with the other brother? Like, does he actually not remember Simeon's name now? Is he, is he have shows that little disregard for him? And... When he gets to the end, it sounds like he's trying to elicit 
uh, pity or empathy from, uh, from his, his son saying, if I am bereaved, then I am bereaved. Except if he's bereaved, it's because the people that he's talking to are all dead. And, and at, at that point, his bereavement is kind of the least of the point. These, the, your, your sons have, 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 have been taken from you. And so you just, again, have this picture of someone who is uh, in great need of intervention, a, a great need for someone to deal with some of those underlying problems that are continuing to cause issues, continuing to cause conflict and pain, uh, both in his own life and in his relationships. Now, the takeaway for us isn't that all of the famines and the crises and the struggles in our lives are God trying to deal with some hidden secret sin in our life. That's not the message here. There, there can be a number of things that God does through our difficulties and our trials. But it is one of the ways that he works when we can't see him. And that's what he did with Mary, the accomplished musician. The, her inability to reach number one forced her to deal with some, some lies that were causing great pain to her. That's, that's what God is doing here with, uh, with Jacob in withholding his prayer, in forcing him into this situation, in extending the famine. He forces him to reflect and to think and to, to examine his own heart, to examine his beliefs and to examine his relationship with the Lord. Is it possible that's what he's doing with you? Is it possible there are some lies somewhere along the line you picked up? Maybe it was in a time of crisis or difficulty or pain, something that you believe that just isn't true, but it felt true in that moment, and you've never looked back and examined it and gotten free of it. Could it be that, that similarly there, there's some sin that... that it just holds on to you as much as you hold on to it. And God is seeking to dislodge that from you, to set you free from it, continuing to put his hand on that, to point his finger to that as a recognition that this is kind of one of those things that's beneath all of the other issues in your life that you dealing with would bring great relief. If that is true of you, aren't you glad that God's so persistent? Aren't you glad that he didn't give up? Didn't just say, boy, they seem to be hanging on to that one for a long time. I, I better just not bother. I better, I better just leave them to it. Isn't it encouraging to know that you're not alone in this? I don't know about you, but I can often get the impression that it just me having to deal with my own sins and God is sitting off to the side with a, a clipboard and a score sheet evaluating my performance. And this passage gives an entirely different picture of God. He, he isn't sitting off to the side evaluating my performance. He's rolled up his sleeves and he is actually taking the lead, helping to set me free, helping me to bring, bring relief from problems that I would otherwise not have the eyes to see, not be willing to address, and not have the resources to, uh, to find victory over. 
It's, a, it's an incredible picture of God's mercy at work in our lives to free us and to bring relief to us. So God can pry our fingers loose when we won't let go. He can also give us a do-over so that we can make it right. He doesn't just have us sit with the regret, have us left to, to deal with ourselves or with the painful memories of things that we've done, of things that we feel shame over. He works to, to give us another opportunity, not only forgiveness, but an opportunity to make things right. God can give us a do-over do so that we can make it right. Now, prolonging the famine was a do-over for Jacob because we saw last time in Genesis 42 that he had sworn that he wouldn't let Benjamin go. Now, the famine has been extended. God has forced his hand. He is going to reluctantly release Benjamin, trust in God, and uh, we, we see him ending this little episode with prayer. Judah got a do-over as well, because in verse 3, he stands up as now leader among the brothers. He is going to seek to take responsibility and seek to bring a resolution to the problem. In verse 8, he asks his father to entrust Benjamin to him. And in verse 9, hear what he says, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. He's putting his own life down as collateral for his brother Benjamin. It's actually the first time in all of scripture where somebody offers their life as a substitute for another's. And those, those words come from the mouth of Judah, the one from whom the Messiah will later come. But it's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? I will be a pledge of his safety. Can anyone think of another time in scripture where Judah gave a pledge? For some of you who are here with us at Christmas last year through December, we looked at the life of Tamar, and it was another time when Judah, in fact, gave a pledge. At, at that time, uh, he, had, he, he was in a moment of crisis, and uh, he was offering a pledge, but he offered a pledge that time to a woman that he thought was a prostitute. He had offered a pledge to serve himself, and it has probably been his greatest moment of, of shame, of regret, of guilt, and he has carried that with him as uh, one of the, the painful memories of his past. God's now giving him a do-over. Not only does God offer forgiveness, God gives us opportunities to grow and to uh, show that we have changed and, and moved on from past sins. He'd offered a pledge to serve himself. Now he'll offer himself as a pledge to save his family. Judah will have an opportunity to do what's right. So, Jacob got a do-over, Judah got a do-over, and so do the other brothers. God gives the same opportunity to them. As they arrive in Egypt, Joseph invites them to a banquet. And as soon as they get invited to, the, to Joseph's home, like he's the most powerful person that they've 
ever known in uh, that part of the world. And when they're invited to their home after he had treated them and asked them all those, those questions last time, he figures something is up. They figure that there is some kind of problem. They're feeling a great weight of uh, fear, of anxiety, and burden. When Joseph sees his brother Benjamin, he immediately blesses him in verse 29. He says, God be gracious to you, my son. That's not how the other brothers were greeted by Joseph the last time. We saw Joseph treated them harshly. He spoke to them uh, with uh, almost like an interrogation. Then in verse 34, they sit down and the meal is served. And here what it says, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Anyone understand what's happening there? It's not just that Joseph realizes, boy, that little Benjamin, he can eat like a horse. That's not what's going on here, right? Here, Joseph realizes these are the brothers that last time in his memory, growing up, when their father had treated him with favoritism, treated him with, as a special child, these are the brothers who couldn't handle that favoritism and responded with, with anger, they responded with jealousy, and they threatened him with murder, sold him into slavery. They got rid of him. Joseph is going to give his brothers a do-over. God is going to give the brothers another chance. How will they respond? How will they, how will they deal with this opportunity? When, the brother, when Benjamin gets singled out like this, he is given five times the amount of food. Are they going to respond the way they did to Joseph? Are they going to find a way to off him? Deal with him? Get rid of him? Express their displeasure and anger towards him? We're waiting for a resolution. And in verse 34, the chapter ends with these words. And they drank and were merry with him. They've had 20 years now to reflect on their greatest sin. They've seen how it destroyed their father. They've seen how it, it, once it's done, it's done, and they haven't been able to bring their brother back. They've probably prayed about it. But their guilt hangs over them. They still think about it. As we've walked through this chapter, we've seen them. They quickly, if, and when something goes wrong, they quickly talk about it. Because it, it is hanging in their memory and continuing to affect them. Here, God gives them the chance to show that they've changed. So when he gets this five times portion of food, they say, let Benjamin have the all-you-can-eat all buffet. We're, we're done competing. We're, we're done getting worked up over little injustices like this. We're, we're, we're okay with somebody getting special treatment and us not receiving that. They've moved on. They respond to the do-over, and this time they get a chance to make it right. And I think it's one of the ways that God works in our lives. I, I can think of times where I, I, I've, I've been in this situation and I think only after the moment has passed, I'll think, oh, I wish I'd have said this. 
I wish I could have, could have done things differently. I, I wish I could have responded in this way. And I pray, and God magically gives a repeat of that similar encounter. He, he brings the situation up again and gives me an opportunity to make it right. Gives me a do-over. And I think that God often does that in our lives. And, and, and being aware of that and being uh, just open to, to seeing that, you begin to see there, there are issues in your lives. Maybe there are sins that you have committed. Maybe there are opportunities that you have missed. And as you bring those before the Lord, as you confess them before him, he graciously gives us opportunities. He graciously works in our lives to bring those, uh, those moments to pass again where we have an opportunity to speak. We, we have an opportunity to act differently. So we've said that God can pry our fingers loose when we won't let go. He can give us a do-over so that we can make it right. But even in the midst of that, we can still question his intentions. We can still think that he's doing something wrong when uh, he is doing something out of love. And so finally, we see that God's aim is a peace on the other side of holiness. Uh, often, we are the people who are just asking God to make our lives comfortable, and he's dealing with something deeper than that, leading us to a deeper sense of rest in our souls. Uh, he is the one seeking the peace in our lives on the other side of holiness. So let me explain. There's no question that God has allowed some very unpleasant circumstances so far, right? Started off with this terrible famine. Uh, I, I struggle if I'm an hour late for lunch, let alone having to wonder where is my meal's going to come from. How are we going to actually survive? Will, will we starve to death, literally? Hard, hard circumstances to go through. It puts Jacob in a position he doesn't want to be in. He's also allowed a powerful ruler to demand to see his youngest son. And he doesn't want to have his youngest son in the hands of a powerful ruler. Doesn't trust that. God's also subjected the brothers to favoritism and injustice again. And those were painful trials that they'd been through in their past. They don't want to go through those things again. They don't want to face them again. You feel stupid when you're the oldest brother and you're the one who should be paid the greater honor. And meanwhile, you see your, old, your, your youngest brother being treated like a king and it just stirs up a lot of painful memories from your past. You don't want that. You don't want to have to deal with that. And yet God, in this, uh, in, in this uh, uh, interaction with, with Joseph and the family, does all of those things and it appears that he does them intentionally. And I think we often question God in those times and we think, how can that be fair? How could a good God allow that? How could, how could he see that and not want to do things differently? We question him and we assume he doesn't see or he just doesn't care enough to do, to do things in a different way. Now, while we don't always know what God is doing in those times, in this particular case, we are given a very clear indication of what he's doing. And it's 
it's hinted at through a, the repetition of a particular word that happens right in the middle of this chapter. It, it's like uh, we are, we're being given by Moses this little uh, signal that, hey, in case you're wondering what God is doing here, this is what I want you to look out for. This is what uh, you should be seeing in God's actions. It's the, the word that gets repeated four times is the Hebrew word shalom. It's translated with different English words in the passage, so it's hard to see. Uh, but it's, it's that word peace. But it's a, a, a deep, lasting peace where everything is right in the world. Everything is, is secure in, in God's hand. It is that kind of peace. And just watch how it's, it's brought out. In verse 18, the brothers are freaking out because they've been invited to Joseph's house. They assume it's because of the money that was in their sacks. They assume they're going to be accused of stealing. Uh, they've already had one of their brothers thrown in prison. They figure maybe this is where the rest of us is, are going to meet the end of the line. Their guilty conscience has made them anxious. It's made them fearful. So then in verse 23, Joseph Stewart says to them, Peace to you. Shalom to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. It's interesting that here we have an Egyptian speaking shalom to uh, these Israelites and telling them not to be afraid and giving reference to what God has done in their lives, the God of their father has done in their lives, bringing uh, peace and reassurance to them. Then in verses 27 and 28, there's an exchange between Joseph and the brothers. It, it at first just seems like a polite little greeting. It says, and he inquired about their welfare, meaning uh, Joseph inquired about uh, their, their, the brothers' welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they say, well, your, father, your servant, our father is well, he's still alive. And it just feels like this polite exchange. But literally, the, the passage says, and he inquired about their shalom and said, is your father shalom, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they say, oh, your, your servant, our father is shalom. He is still alive. When we hear that, hey, is he shalom? Are you shalom? Is everybody shalom? And they're like, oh yeah, we're shalom. There's no problem. He's shalom. We're shalom. It's all shalom. We're, we're all, we're all, we've got all peace. Oh yeah, it's peaceful. No problem. It's amazing. And you and I are supposed to hear that and feel a bit of a chuckle and think, there's no shalom in this family. There, there, there's no peace here. We, we've already seen that the brothers are living with crushing guilt. The father is, is, is torn down with, with fear and grief. This family hasn't had everyone together for Thanksgiving in more than two decades. There's no shalom. There's no peace. The only person that we might have guessed was, was feeling some shalom was Joseph, right? He's got the... He's got the promotion. He's got the money, the authority. He's got the new family, the two sons. He's, if anyone, he's got shalom. And we might have just kind of breezed by that, but Moses puts this little cultural detail for us to remind us, 
maybe, maybe we need to put a question mark beside Joseph's shalom too. Hear what it says in verse 32. They served him by himself, referring to, they served Joseph by himself and the brothers by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with Joseph by themselves. Why is everyone sitting in different, different tables? Why is everyone separated from one another? That seems strange, right? Okay, he's going to tell us. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Uh, in case you're wondering, abomination, when you see that in scripture, it, it's probably the strongest and the most severe word for hate in, in the Hebrew language. You, you almost have to spit when you say it because it, 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 it's when you're feeling, your feelings of animosity to someone or something are so strong, you, you actually have a physical reaction. It, it disgusts you. We hear that and we realize Joseph has spent the last 20 years living amongst a people who feel that about him. That the, the people that he has, he has been called to serve in Egypt, they, they want to spit or throw up at the thought of eating with someone from his ethnicity. Where do you find shalom in that? Where, where do you find peace in that? As we've gone through the story of Joseph and his brothers, you might have thought the same thing about them as you do about your, your life. Because I, I think about this about my life. So may, maybe this is not you. I sometimes think this way. God, all seem, God always seems to be making life difficult for people. Ever feel that way? Ever think, God, couldn't you just make it easier? Couldn't you just like smooth the path a little bit? Like, why, why are this, all these difficulties? He's testing them, bringing them through trials. And I sometimes think it's probably because he just never satisfied with us. God always got to do better. Maybe that's why God's doing it. And I read this passage and I hear Moses' hints. No, it's about shalom. It's about shalom. It's about shalom. And I realize that's not God at all. God is seeking my peace. He's seeking to do a deeper work in my soul that I would find a, a deep shalom in the depths of my heart, a strength that, that would carry me through the difficulties of life, a, a rest in my heart that I, I would feel at one with him and at one with his purposes for me. He wants me to know the peace that can only come on the other side of holiness. And that's what's going on in that great, great uh, title that's applied to Jesus in Isaiah 9, 6, right? He's the Prince of Peace. And we think that means he's the Prince of Happy Thoughts and, and Butterflies. No, he is the one who, who rules shalom. He is the one who brings that, that deep rest to our hearts and soul. And he does that by by often dealing with some of these other issues in our lives that we'd kind of just like to, to brush under the carpet and not ever have to deal with. The first step of that is given to us in, in Romans 5.1. 
It says that we enter into that shalom first with God by putting our trust in him. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls everyone to enter into that shalom through faith in Jesus. So don't ever question God's intentions. Don't ever think, well, he, he's probably out for, out for some painful end in my life. He's just trying to ruin things for me. That's never what God is doing. He is always seeking our deeper peace. And yet, that sin that we won't let go gets in the way of it. The lies that we hang on to get in the way of that. They stand in the face of what he is seeking to do in and through us. And so, ask yourself the question. I need to ask myself the question. Is there a lie that God is seeking to dislodge? Is there something that he is trying to, 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 to get me to see that I, I can put behind me? Are you telling yourself, if I can't be more successful, my life is a failure, it's not worth it? Are you telling yourself, if I don't have a partner, my life will be miserable? It'll all be a failure. Are you telling yourself, if I'm not in control, I can't rest? I've got I've to I've run this thing. I've got to control. Search your heart for the lies that God is seeking to free you from. And at the same time, seek your heart for the sins that he's working to free you from. Do you find yourself in those same situations over and over again? Boy, why does this keep coming up? Why does it keep entering my life? Could it be that God is seeking to graciously give you a do-over? Graciously set you free? Graciously give you an opportunity to make it right? to show that you've grown, show that you've changed. What can feel like, oh God, why this again? Can actually be his gracious work in our lives to bring relief, to bring freedom, to bring peace. Make today the day you decide that you show that you've changed. Cooperate with God. Be a part of what he's seeking to do in your life by responding to him in faith, responding to him in obedience. And as we do that, let's remember and keep reminding ourselves what God is up to. Let's remind ourselves that Jesus is still the Prince of Peace, that he's the one who is pursuing our shalom, that he wants to, to bring that deep rest in our souls and you and I know we don't feel that rest in our souls when we're living our lives rooted in a lie, clinging to a sin. God is at work. He's persistent, but graciously so. Let's look to him now in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves to deal with these things. Would you open our eyes to the lies that we cling to? 
Would you help us to see the sins that you're working to free us from? Give us help when the do-over comes. Help, help us to glorify you in our trust, in our obedience. And thank you for the peace that you give. Thank you for the peace that there is in making peace with you through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who has not made that peace with you through faith in your Son, draw them near. Give them the courage to believe. Help them to respond. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.